Well, friends, we're going to be looking this morning at Mark chapter 9, verses 38 to 42. So if you could turn there, if you're following along in your Bible, Mark 9, 38 to 42. And uh, our dear Pastor Greg, uh, know that he sends his greetings and that uh, his heart is with us, even if not his body. He's uh, visiting his dad in uh, Wisconsin. So be in prayer for him and uh, that it's also just a refreshing time visiting his dad and being a help to him. Um, I'm going to read our text, Mark 9, 38-42, then ask for God's blessing on our time, and then get going. John said to him, that is Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the riches of truth that you have for us on the pages of Scripture, your very word. We thank you for sending Christ, your eternal word, that we might know you and be reconciled to you by the blood that he shed on the cross as we so powerfully just sang the all-sufficient atoning work He accomplished for us. Father, as His people, we want to be increasing in faith and knowledge, increasing in walking, consistent with the work He's done in redeeming us. We pray that You would open our ears to hear Your Word. Please open my mouth to speak with clarity, with faithfulness, with boldness, with love and wisdom. And give us all both the softness of heart and the discerning mind that we need to receive your word rightly. Please shape us into the likeness of your Son together. In his name we pray. Amen. I doubt that the great 20th century Welsh preacher D. Martin Lloyd-Jones was ever accused of being imprecise and careless. And now during the 1940s, it was popular among his fellow evangelicals in England to hold evangelistic rallies which he deemed not to be the best method of ministry, and I tend to agree with him. He also had his concerns about uh, potential for university student ministries to detract from what he viewed as the essential work of the local church. Nevertheless, in 1949, when the Evangelical Campus Group InterVarsity Fellowship was first moving into his home country of Wales, where he came from, they sought Dr. Lloyd-Jones's assistance. At the time, he was a very highly sought-after preacher all over Britain. And despite his misgivings about the wisdom of both evangelistic campaigns and campus ministries, he agreed to help IVF in their uh, campaign in Wales. Why did he do that? Well, his biographer, Ian Murray, and by the way, this is one of the biographies that you can pick up in the Library of Life. I don't see it out there yet. Maybe somebody has it at home. 
But uh, if you ever see it out there at Library of Light, I highly recommend this two-volume uh, Ian Murray biography of Lloyd-Jones. Anyway, close parentheses. Uh, Ian Murray writes, quote, MLJ was not a man to discourage young people with criticism. He approved their zeal, noted their prayerfulness with thankfulness, and waited his opportunity, end quote. Not a man to discourage with criticism. Criticizing other people's zeal and other people's faith can prove a deep discouragement to them, can it? Especially the young. Lloyd-Jones had his principles and he had his concerns, but he chose to patiently work with these students so that he could influence them in a good direction rather than dismiss and discourage them. Our text this morning presents another example where Christian leaders had the opportunity to either walk alongside a zealous fellow believer or discourage him with criticism. Verse 38 gives us the setting of our text. John said to Jesus, him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. John speaks for the twelve uh, chosen disciples of Jesus. And uh, he tells Jesus they encountered a man who was driving out demons in Jesus' name. Now you may recall that this is a work that Jesus had given the twelve to do back in chapter 6 verse 7 and they had done it. Not only that, but more recently, they've experienced failure in driving out a particularly difficult demon. We saw this when we were in chapter 9, verses 14 to 18. For the embarrassing reason that they had forgotten to pray, as Jesus points out in verse 29. So we can imagine it might be a sore subject for them, this matter of casting out demons. Now we're in the central section of Mark, where Peter... Uh, kind of kicked off this section in chapter 8, verse 29, when he confessed Jesus to be the Christ. That was a major moment in Mark. But the disciples have a lot more growing to do. They have to grow a lot more in their understanding of the implications of this truth, that Jesus is the Messiah. Implications both for Christ and for them. You see, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the promised Davidic King but he'll occupy his office by also being the suffering servant of Isaiah's prophecies. He's on his way, even right now, to Jerusalem to assume his reign, not by mounting a throne, but by mounting a cross. He's here not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for sinners. For that reason, to be a disciple is to be, like Jesus, a humble servant. We saw this in the previous section, in verses 33 to 37, that the greatest in the kingdom is the servant of all. And part of what this humble service looks like is treating each other with care. He says, receiving one such child in my name, receiving one another with care as though they were children. Now, looking at verse 38, if you listen carefully to John's complaint there, the real problem is not that this man is casting out demons in Jesus' name. The real problem is at the end of verse 38, that he's not connected to the twelve. They tried to stop him. Why? Because he was not following us. 
Now, Jesus says, follow me multiple times in the Gospel of Mark, but you'll never find him saying, follow my disciples. And this might be our first tip-off that something is amiss. Jesus' immediate reaction is, in verse 39, to correct John and the twelve, do not stop him. And from there, the remainder of our text consists of four reasons Jesus gives for this negative reaction. Four reasons not to stop someone like this. And they're all, each one of them is a profound little uh, wisdom saying, very memorable, but, but deep in wisdom. And as Jesus moves through the four, he's actually going to begin with more superficial concerns and move more and more down to the depths of our heart motivations. So, the main point of it all is this. This morning, Jesus is calling us to exercise a generous spirit when discerning who is His. Jesus is calling us to exercise a generous spirit when discerning who is His. And there are four reasons why He's calling us to this generous spirit. Here are the four, uh, here's the first of the four reasons. In the, the remainder of verse 39... Exercise a generous spirit when discerning who is Christ's because it is foolish to make needless enemies. It's foolish to make needless enemies. Jesus says, For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. We've already seen Jesus dealing with plenty of opposition in Mark. And of course, this opposition is only going to grow and increase until it reaches the climax of the cross. Now, one incredibly practical point, Jesus is clearly not afraid of opposition. But one point he makes here is, don't make an enemy when you don't have to. He's saying, if someone is favorable toward me, why would you go and antagonize that person in my name? Are you trying to radicalize a new enemy against me? Why were the disciples so bothered by this guy casting out demons in Jesus' name? Now we might suspect that he was misusing the Lord's name as though it were a magic word that gave power to its user, even in the absence of personal faith. That would be a legitimate concern if that were happening. We hear about one such case in Acts chapter 19, verses 13 to 16. In Paul's missionary journeys, he runs across some Jewish exorcists who see how powerfully Paul wields Jesus' name against demons, and they say, I want in on that. So they try to mimic Paul's method by citing Jesus' name and they're abusing Jesus' name because they don't trust in Jesus. And they quickly find out that they have no power over the demon. The the demon overpowers them. But this man's case in Mark 9 is different because he is successfully casting out demons in Jesus' name. He's not an imposter, but a believer. And the genuineness of his faith will become clearer and clearer as our text progresses. So the disciples' issue is not that this man is abusing Jesus' name. The problem again is he was not following with us. They're making themselves a reference point for for kingdom membership, not Jesus. And viewed in that light, they have an enemy here. They have an opponent They're Jesus' authorized representatives, aren't they? And well, yes, they are. They're the ones he did commission to uh, represent him, we saw back in chapter 6. But they've fallen into the trap of mixing their own cause with Jesus' cause. They are the gatekeepers. And the way they reason is, if we don't know you, 
you must not know Jesus. One interesting implication of our text is that church Catholicity is not administrative, but doctrinal. Now, what do I mean by that? What do I mean church Catholicity? I simply mean the reality of the universal church. We affirm the universal church, the body of Christ, consisting of all believers everywhere. And we gladly embrace our oneness in Christ with the entire universal body of believers. But one error that cropped up in church history was beginning to think that this Catholic universal identity of the church should be expressed in a unified and hierarchical organization that eventually came under the lead of one single individual human authority. Now we Protestants do not deny the reality of the universal church and we should have no reservations confessing with the Apostles' Creed we believe in the Holy Catholic Church. But we vigorously deny that this church is equivalent to the Roman church that's headed by the Pope, which claims to be the Catholic Church. The thing is, we can't look at earthly organizations and say this uh, organization in earthly realm is equal to the spiritual reality of the church. A church isn't defined by apostolic succession, as Rome claims. It's defined by apostolic doctrine. And wherever this doctrine is found... Wherever the gospel of Jesus Christ is being rightly proclaimed and believed and symbolized through the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, this is where the true church is. So just kind of a doctrinal implication of this text. But moving closer to our hearts, this passage is testing each one of us. Is our reference point for the kingdom of God nearness to us, our local church, our theological distinctives, the practices that we deem wise and biblical, our stream of tradition, our favorite teachers or books or conferences, or is it Jesus himself? We all know what it's like to meet another professing Christian somewhere and immediately we're struck by what a different place they're coming from different denomination, different influences. They haven't heard of any of the people that we've heard of, and we haven't heard of any of the people that they've heard of. Not a different gospel, if not a different gospel, certainly different beliefs and practices. Maybe in their conduct, we might detect even great spiritual immaturity. And it can be very tempting to blow these people off as unbelievers. Not so fast, says Jesus. Why make an enemy out of a brother or sister who's just very different than you? Who has no connections with you? Who needs more enemies? So, no need to make needless enemies is the first reason. The second reason to be generous when discerning who belongs to Christ is, in verse 40, those not against us are for us. Those not against us are for us. This is exactly what Jesus says. For the one who is not against us is for us. Now let's imagine that you're a paratrooper in a war and you parachute in behind enemy lines at night and you're trying to link up with your fellow soldiers and accomplish your mission objectives together. You have to find your fellow soldiers and group together. But one tricky issue is determining who's on your side. It's dark, it's chaotic, everyone landed all over the place. 
Now you hear some noise in the trees a few yards off. Do you come in for a handshake or do you start shooting? Well, let's imagine that you see somebody else that you know is an enemy. And this mystery soldier, you can't quite figure out, has a clear sight of that person and immediately starts shooting at him. When you see that and you see what's happening, what does that tell you? Guess what? There's your evidence. He's on your side. He's one of you. In a battle with two clear sides, this is reliable truth. If someone is not against you, they're for you. This man is citing Jesus' name and doing Jesus-like work. He's casting out demons. He's rolling back the power of Satan over the souls of men in the land. So Jesus is challenging his disciples. If you're really on my side, don't shoot the people who are doing my work. You see, there are only two possible statuses with regard to Christ. For or against. You may recall the theme that we've already seen in Mark 3 and 4, this idea of being insiders or outsiders. That Jesus and the response to Jesus sorts out everybody that he encounters into one of these two categories. You're an insider or you're an outsider. It all depends on your faith response or lack thereof. Now, if you're familiar with the Gospels, then this verse might bother you. It might seem to contradict something that Jesus says elsewhere. I don't know if you've ever noticed this or been bothered by this. In Matthew 12.30, Jesus says, Whoever is not with me is against me. He says the same thing in Luke 11.23. Isn't that the opposite? Whoever's not with me is against me. How can Jesus say in one place, If you're not with me, you're against me. But then here in Mark 9.40, say those who aren't against us are for us. Well, these statements don't contradict each other at all. The only reason they might strike us as contradictory is if we imagine that everybody falls into three groups. You've got Jesus' team on one side, you've got Jesus' enemies on the other, and then you've got this ambiguous group in the mushy middle. What do we make of this third group? What do we think of these people? Well, if you listen to Matthew 12, 30, since they're not with Jesus, ah, that means that they're against him. But then if you come to Mark 9.40 and you see that he says, if they're not against me, they're with me, then you, oh no, then that middle group actually belongs to Jesus. So then you have a contradiction. But this dilemma is not necessary. Because in different ways, both texts are saying precisely that there is no third group in the middle. There are only two sides, and that's it. There's Jesus' team, and there's his enemies those against him, and those who are for and with him. Now, Matthew 12.30 comes in the context of people accusing Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Satan. A pretty serious accusation. And his response to that includes this saying. So what's he doing there? He's warning those who challenge him that there's no middle ground. They have to make a choice. And if they don't decisively choose for him, for faith in him, then they are, by default, his enemies. But in our context, he's not warning potential opponents. He's warning his own disciples. The reason that they need to be warned is that they're in danger of excluding true insiders and treating them as outsiders because of their own territorial ambition. That's the danger in focus here. 
They resent the fact that this stranger is being useful in God's kingdom in a way that they're supposed to be. So they want to exclude him. Both sayings are true. Everything Jesus says, everything the Bible says is true. If you're not with him, you're against him. And if you're not against him, you're with him. And it takes wisdom to honor both of these sayings. I suspect that by disposition, most of us will find ourselves more drawn to one of these statements than the other. But there's a time for everything under the sun. Sometimes it's time, like in Matthew 12, 30, it's time to make the dividing line very clear with others. But at other times, we need to hold back and be careful about our exclusivist impulse. We need to be aware of the danger of a stingy heart when it comes to recognizing faith in others. Is Jesus warning you this morning, beware drawing the line too tightly around yourself? Or is he warning us as a church, beware drawing the line too tightly around yourselves? And even if we do, and it's true that we do have to draw lines, and we do have to uh, exclude others who profess faith in Christ and consider actually that this is not a true profession sometimes, with what heart do we do that? Do we do that with flippancy and scoffing and glee or with grief and heaviness? Maybe we hear of another church that we don't associate with. They have not a different gospel, but definitely different secondary doctrines and methods we don't agree with. And we see that they're having success and they're producing visible fruit. We might have the reaction to complain against us in our hearts. It shouldn't be this way. And oh, don't worry, we have our sanctified reasons. We tell ourselves that we're concerned for the the, the poor spiritual care that the new believers are going to be getting there. And truly, this is a valid concern. I'm not saying there's no validity to being thoughtful about that. But are we sure that there also isn't just some plain old jealousy at work in our hearts? Factiousness? Territorial ambition? When is it Matthew 12.30 time? And when is it Mark 9.40 time? Well, we have to use discernment. In our, what I would call broadly reformed kind of theological circles, we love precise biblical exposition. We love precise doctrinal formulation. We love our thick theology books. But as an unfortunate byproduct of these strengths... We can be quick to dismiss and disdain the faith of other people in other traditions. And whether this is accurate or not, in a given case, we can judge them as careless in their beliefs and practices. We can look down our noses at them and prefer basically to treat them like non-believers. Of course, people of any persuasion can fall. It's not just people of our theological persuasion. Anybody can fall into this temptation. And let's be honest with ourselves, emotionally and mentally, it's far easier to dismiss someone rather than to live in the uncomfortable tension of not quite knowing what to do with them, not quite knowing their spiritual status, or affirming that they're believers even though we have sizable differences and disagreements with them. It's kind of a weird place to live, isn't it? It's much easier to say, ah, forget about them. But beloved, it's to this difficult work that Jesus calls us. Those who are not against Christ are for him. The second reason, I'm sorry, the third reason to use generosity in discerning who belongs to Christ is in verse 41. 
Good works for his sake display kingdom membership. Good works for his sake display kingdom membership. Jesus goes on and says, For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Here Jesus teaches his disciples how to spot the smoking gun of true identity and true membership in his kingdom. And that is those who trust Jesus show their true identity by doing good works in his name for his sake. He envisions a scenario where someone gives a disciple a refreshing cup of water, perhaps on his travels through, excuse me, through arid Galilee on foot. And the issue is not simply that someone would do an act of kindness, but he says the motive, because you belong to Christ. It's just like the demon exorcism that the stranger was doing. It was a good work for Jesus' sake. Now by saying that this person will be rewarded, Jesus is not teaching works righteousness. He's not saying that anyone gets into his kingdom because they do good works. Rather, he's he's simply identifying this indicates membership in the kingdom. And while we stand among Christ's people in grace alone through faith alone, God will graciously reward the obedience of his people. You may remember the repeated refrain from Matthew chapter 6 when Jesus tells his disciples, your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Within the kingdom of God, there is reward for obedience done in faith. The point of this saying is to exhort us to rejoice at faith in Christ and the fruits that it produces wherever we find it. Even if it's among people that have no connection to our own selves, our own community, our church, our stream of tradition. Even if it's among people who have different beliefs and practices than us. And this takes discernment because there are such a thing as false gospels. Which are satanic deceptions. Not every teaching and not every person who claims Christ belongs to Christ. There are many biblical texts that are clear on this. Paul goes so far as to say in Galatians 1.9, If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. There is a reality to the danger of false and deceptive gospels. So we're not to be naive. But again, the point of this text is we're to be generous hearted. The problem in view here is not naivety about false gospels, but factiousness and divisiveness. And just as there's a danger of affirming on one side false gospels and those who propagate them, so there's a danger on the other side of turning our guns against the brethren because of their differences from us and their distance from us and their unknownness to us. Brothers and sisters, we need to be careful and beware of Christian teachers who are quick to draw lines between professing believers, defining who's legitimate and who isn't. This is a problem in our day. There are some well-respected Christian leaders, some very well-known Christian leaders, who are guilty of drawing this circle far too tightly and far too readily. And sometimes we, and other people that we might be influenced by, we might draw these lines subtly by the way we use phrases like, we talk about a solid church, or like-minded believers. Now, there are good functional reasons to talk this way sometimes. For instance, 
when a loved one is uh, moving to a new town and, and we want to help them look out for a new church, it's, it's appropriate to use discernment and to look for a genuinely solid church. Not every church is equally healthy from a biblical standpoint. But my point is that if we're constantly dividing other professing believers into these categories of solid and unsolid, or like-minded and everyone else, this kind of thinking will inevitably cause us to grieve the Holy Spirit with divisiveness and factiousness. Jesus alone has the authority to judge the faith of those who profess him, even if it's different, even if it's disconnected from us. And be assured, he will do that. He'll sort it all out in the last day when he returns. Meanwhile, as we wait for him to judge and to come and sort it out, he's called us to display the beauty of his kingdom with large-heartedness. This is to be a place where we're more concerned with serving those who profess faith in Christ and coming alongside to aid and strengthen their faith as allies rather than discouraging and dismissing it. So, that coworker who's Pentecostal or Episcopalian or loves to listen to Joel Osteen, maybe they're a believer, maybe not. But let's have a heart that desires to come alongside and patiently nurture whatever spark of faith in Christ that we can find there, rather than scoffing and dismissing. Good works for Jesus' sake display kingdom membership. Uh, The fourth reason to exercise generosity when discerning who belongs to Christ is this, in verse 42. If we attack insiders, it must mean we're outsiders. If we attack insiders, it must mean that we are outsiders. He says in verse 42, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now, I have to explain why I'm including this verse in our text rather than ending at verse 41. Most of our Bibles are sectioned out that way. Of course, you may know that the section divisions in our Bibles are a matter of interpretation. And often you have a pivot verse that kind of both functions as the end of the previous part and then also the beginning of the next part. And I think that that's what verse 42 is. It's kind of a hinge verse that kind of belongs with both sections. It introduces verses 43 to 50 by talking about two things that are prominent in that section, causing someone to stumble and the threat of going to hell. However, I think verse 42 has closer ties to our text. If Jesus were starting something new here, then the phrase, these little ones who believe in me, would be adrift in search of a reference point. Who are these people you're talking about, Jesus? There would be no real clear reference point there. But if we see this as Jesus continuing the earlier point he's already been making, then he's clearly talking about people like this man, strangers to the disciples who truly believe. The man who's introduced in verse 38. The term that's translated cause to sin is is literally, you probably have a footnote in your ESV Bible, cause to stumble which is a metaphor that kind of broadly just means knocking someone off course. Now, it could include causing someone to sin, or it could include causing someone's faith to fail. And if this verse belonged with the following section, verses 43 to 50, we can understand maybe cause to sin would be more appropriate, because that's more what Jesus is talking about there. 
But if it belongs with our text, our text is not so much about causing people to sin, it's about discouraging the faith of others. It's about knocking people off course in terms of faith. It's about discouraging with criticism, the very error that Lloyd-Jones sought to avoid with the InterVarsity students. Now Jesus paints a vivid and frightening scenario of punishment. Having a millstone hung around your neck and thrown into the sea. If you just spend five seconds imagining that, it's terrifying. This may have been a reference to the way that the Romans in Galilee punished a group of insurrectionists prior to Jesus' time. Whatever the case historically, it is a picture, a, just a mere illustration of the penalty of torment in hell. Words fail to describe the depths of pain and terror associated with removal from God's goodness and falling into the hand of God's judgment. He's not saying they will be, have a millstone hung around their neck and thrown into the sea. He's saying, no, no, it'll be far worse than that. At a certain point, words just can't carry it any further. This is a dire and a solemn warning. And it's the mirror image of verse 41. Because on the one hand, a cup of water for Jesus' sake demonstrated kingdom membership. And, and on the other hand, tripping up the faith of others demonstrates that one actually is an outsider to the kingdom. It demonstrates that whatever our profession may be, we don't follow Christ. And so we're left in our sin to face the eternal punishment that we deserve. That is the threat that Jesus gives for those whose factious spirit causes them to smother the vulnerable faith of others. And to call such persons these little ones indicates that Christ has a tender heart for believers of weak and fragile faith. They're to be cared for They're not to be driven to despair and to abandon the faith. So Jesus is presenting us this morning with, certainly with wisdom, but with much more than wisdom. He's facing us with a life or death warning. And as we saw this factious spirit expressed in John and the Twelve, it's rooted in pride. He was not following with us. Territorial ambition. Jealousy that this man could be fruitful for the Lord without any connection to us. And pride always lies at the heart of a factious spirit. You see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. Paul is addressing factiousness, a factious divided spirit in the Corinthian church where members have coalesced around various leaders they like. They've all kind of chosen their guy. They're claiming to be of such a person. He says, it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. So this is a clear case of a divisive and factious spirit. But that is just the symptom. What is the underlying disease? Paul diagnoses it as nothing other than rank pride. We divide and we choose our favorite teachers and we set up lines between ourselves ultimately because we think it makes us better than the people on the other side. Or in the case of the disciples because we're jealous of the success they're finding on the other side. So we want to dismiss them. And this heart is an abomination to God. 
It is anti-gospel to the core. So the solution is not just a mere, let's get along. It's radical, meaning it goes to the root. Paul calls them back to the humbling cross as the ground of salvation. He says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Remember how you were saved by the word of the cross. He says, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He goes on and says, 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 26, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world, us, to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world, us, to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not us, to bring to nothing the things that are, listen to this, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The cross levels us all. It's only nothings and it's only nobodies that are admitted into the kingdom. The disciples' factiousness is just another manifestation of the same old carnal pride that caused them to argue in verse 34 about who is the greatest. And there's no room for this evil pride in the kingdom of God. The cross removes our boasting utterly. Isn't this ironic that the warning Jesus gives in verse 42 means it is possible that one who thinks that he's an insider with Jesus and goes around judging and antagonizing other insiders, accusing them of being outsiders, that that is a self-deceived outsider. Wouldn't it be so tragic to be a hell-bound and factious and divisive person against the brethren, thinking yourself a friend of Jesus, while actually functioning as an instrument of Satan to devour the flock? So if you're a Christian and you go around judging other professing Christians all over the place, labeling them impure, immature, guess what? Maybe it's you that's not a Christian. Examine yourself. Oh, dread the thought of deceiving yourself in this way. The territorial ambition of John and the Twelve is alive and well today in Christian churches in all sorts of parachurch ministries, in social media platforms, brand creation, and our own hearts. That ofness of Paul, of Cephas, that ofness that Paul calls out in Corinth, our Christian celebrity culture makes it almost impossible to avoid. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't admire, and I'm not saying we shouldn't learn from anyone with a prominent ministry. They can often be very helpful to us. But this is a deadly and pernicious heart trap. Now thankfully for you and me, the mere presence of pride and the mere presence of factiousness in our hearts doesn't automatically mean we're outsiders to the kingdom. After all, be encouraged that 11 of these 12 men actually were true kingdom insiders, including John, who spoke for the whole group, even though they were quite mixed up and prone to sin. The Corinthians were quite mixed up and prone to sin as well, but they were saints nevertheless. Paul says that in the second verse of 1 Corinthians, a, church to, a letter to a really messed up church. He calls them saints. There is abundant grace in Christ and His cross. 
for disciples who are in process. For disciples who are waging an ongoing battle with pride and divisiveness in our hearts. The cross does remove boasting, but it's a lifelong battle to work out our salvation and put to death the old way of pride, the old man. Maybe you're hearing this this morning and realizing that you are a self-deceived outsider. You thought yourself a Christian and the purest kind of Christian, and you've been claiming Christ but busy judging other Christians. Or maybe that you've never claimed faith at all. Or you're somewhere in between those two. But whatever the case, the boast-destroying message of the cross is our only hope. And it is to that cross that I commend you this morning. It's there that Christ gave His life as a ransom for sinners, all who would trust Him, all who would turn to Him with a repentant heart and receive His gift by faith. And those who have believed in Jesus, those of us who trust Him, let's extend generous hearts toward the faith of others. Let's devote ourselves to aiding their faith rather than dismissing them as fakers. Let's resolve that when we encounter those who claim to follow Christ, but we're not sure, we have questions, we'll nourish and encourage any spark of faith that we find rather than judging and discouraging it. That we'll fan it into flame rather than quenching it. It is springtime, and we we have new plants sprouting up from the soil all over the place, and they are small and fragile. A good gardener doesn't look at them and scoff at their smallness and pluck them all up. No, a good gardener cares for them, cultivates them, protects them, and patiently gives them time and space to grow. Isn't the grace of Jesus so beautifully magnified by his inclusion of little ones who believe, even when their weakness and and ignorance might irritate us? How we should long for the heart of Christ toward these little ones, not looking down on them, but cherishing them and encouraging their faith. Friends, Jesus is calling us to exercise a generous spirit when discerning who is his. It's common sense wisdom. There's no reason to make enemies we don't have to make. It's also a result of the stark line that he draws through the human race. Those who aren't outsiders are insiders. Remember that Jesus doesn't despise good works done in his name, even if it's done by people who are distant from us, who are unrelated to us, who are different from us, and even people who are wrong in certain ways. If our hearts delight in creating factions, then we are walking in pride. And the Lord calls us this morning back to walking in step with the word of the foolish cross. Where then is our boasting? Let's pray. God, we praise you for the all-sufficient grace of your Son that he did give his life as a ransom for many. All kinds of sinners, some of whose lives are, are visibly messed up with sin and some whose sin may be a self-righteous and prideful heart that expresses itself in factiousness. Whatever kind of sin and whatever expression we give, we all need the boast-destroying power of, of the cross of Christ. 
We exalt You that all the power is from You. All the grace is from You. All we brought is neediness and faith. Even the faith is a gift from You. We pray that we would be a people who use discernment. Who do, who do indeed recognize that it's, sometimes it's time to say that those who are not with us are against us. But sometimes it's time to say those not against us are with us. Give us a generous spirit. To, to encourage the faith of those who we don't recognize rather than to discourage and to, and to move people farther away from you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.